Good morning. My name is Vicki, and I'm glad to be bringing the word this morning. I know that a number of you guys know what, that today is special because we get to see a nativity play, and that that is going to be amazing. I can't wait for it. I've just seen a little bit here and there, and it's, it's going to be awesome. But before today, there was a different phenomenon that happened August 21st, 2017, I don't know how many of you guys remember what happens on that day. It had been talked about for a while. And even for the typical person that doesn't know anything about anything, it was on the news. It was, you know, like, you know, being talked about. People were talking about, are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? August 21st, where are you going to be? How are you going to see it? The total solar eclipse was happening. Now, there are people that, you know, are into stuff like this, like that went and looked at meteor showers with their parents and pulled out telescopes and stuff like that. My family was not that family. I didn't grow up looking at that kind of thing. And so um, I was like, total solar eclipse, blah, blah, blah. You know, like it's like whatever. You know, like I don't care. I'm not going to spend money to buy glasses, you know. But my husband was one of those families, like he, his dad worked with NASA, he, you know, like grew up wanting to be an astronaut, and so, you know, he was like, we gotta do it, you know? And, and I didn't know what a big deal it was. I mean, people were making reservations for campsites and places to stay so that they could be in, in that path, you know, like that was being printed everywhere. Like they had been planning like a year in advance for that kind of thing, you know? And um, there were, I, I knew, people that were traveling from out of state that were trying to see the total eclipse. And I was like, can't we just do it from Portland? Like, can I just go outside and do it? And they were like, it's not the same, right? Like, there was all this stuff. And so we went with some friends to drive out to, like, around Silverton area, went to a park, you know, um, got some glasses. And, yeah, this, I mean, Augie, that was Augie, right? Like, he was tiny. Um, and we went to this park, like, just in the middle of nowhere, and there were just bunch of people standing around like we all had lawn chairs blankets and everybody had their glasses on like geeking out you know and then we all these a bunch of strangers all experienced this incredible like phenomenon together we got to see stages of it remember when there were like little crescents everywhere and then like you know and then we all kind of like just waited and then everything went dark and it was just silent we all just kind of stood in the moment of like this is not going to ever happen again for hundreds of years, but here we are all together experiencing this together. And then, and then the sun came back, right? Like, and then we all got in our cars and I sat in like standstill traffic for two and a half hours, right? But was it worth it, right? Like at that moment, I was like, never again, right? Like, and apparently I will never do this again, you know, but um, it was such a cool experience to be there together, to like all know, like we're all coming to this random park in this, you know, like an hour away from our homes to experience this together. Now, we are celebrating um, in this season a greater, much greater phenomenon that had happened 2,000 years ago. Another star that show up, showed up, right? And there were different people that got to experience it and see it, and we get to celebrate that in a lot of ways through a nativity play, right? And for most of us, even if we didn't grow up in the church, we know the usual players, right? Like we know who is part of the nativity play. We've got, you know, the animals, shepherds, Mary and Joseph, baby Jesus, right? Like the wise men, also known as like the three kings or the magi. We've got the star, very important. We've got the angels, however many kids there are that also needed roles, right? Like, 
right? Like we all, we all know the players. And if one of those players is missing, we're like, hey, where, where are the shepherds, right? Like, or where's this? Where's that? And, and you know what? We've been in a series where we've been talking about why are these like the key roles? Why are these the key players in the nativity? You know, why didn't we choose other things? Now, animals, we get it, right? Like, this story takes place in their home. Like, they have to be part of it, you know? Like, camels, maybe, sheep, definitely. Like, the animals are definitely what set the scene. Mary and Joseph and Jesus, obviously, they're the main characters. We wouldn't have a story without them, right? They're the key players. The shepherds, they come from nearby, Right, like we gotta, we gotta make sure that everybody knows, like there's shepherds there, and they probably bring some sheep with them, right? The shepherds were on night shift, and an angel appears, telling them, "Hey, in your town right now, if you follow the star, there is the savior of the world that is about to be born." And so the the shepherds, they're like, "What?" You know, like, and they they go and they have this incredible encounter, not just with the angel, but then with the savior of the world through worshiping Jesus. But the wise men, the wise men, they they stick out, right? Like, I don't know if you, I mean, maybe because we're so used to this tableau of the nativity, we're just like, "Oh yeah, the wise men." But the wise men, if you ever look, you're like, they are like one of these things does not belong, right? Like they are for sure the ones that stick out. They're usually dressed richly in colors, right? Like they're dressed in these beautiful rich clothes signifying their wealth, right? Like it is in stark contrast to like the dirty, like like earthy neutrals of everybody else, right? They're sticking out. In art, they're usually depicted in three different ethnicities, um, and none of them are Jewish. Everybody else is Jewish but them, right? And the idea was that they were from the East, and they were most likely from a region in Persia that was a very large and wealthy empire that brought people from all over the world for trade, for business, and education. And so they were depicted as kind of the representatives of what it might have looked like in Persia at that day, not Jewish and of different ethnicities. Their journey was likely very long, right? If they're traveling from the east, they said it took about a year or so to get to the manger. Again, we don't think of this. We're like, hey, you know, like I'm in the next town. I'm just going to Salem, right? Like it's not that. Like they had to travel for around a year, even though they had camels to help them. Now, what's the weirdest part? If If you were just looking at the nativity player, you're like, oh, everybody just showed up at the same time. Like, Jesus is born, Mary's like, wrap this baby up real quick, and then everybody shows up, you know, like, you know, mother's dream, right? Like, um, but that isn't actually the case. If you read the Bible of who shows up where, the wise men actually don't show up until 12 days after. So the shepherds and them come, and then 12 days later, the wise men show up right? So it's actually like not biblically true that they would all be there at the same time, but for, you know, for different reasons at the nativity play, they're all there at the same time. And you got to wonder, why would we do it that way? And I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, give us the key point right now, right here. If you don't hear anything else, it is, I believe it is this, that in the familiar tableau, of who is there to worship the king of kings and the savior of the world that night? 
that we see who God is reaching out for, what his rescue is for. That it is not merely for the Jews. It is not merely for his creation in his animals or in the land, but it is also for the Gentiles. It is for all people. It is for the skeptics. It is for those who didn't really know the traditions and the scriptures of that time. They are there to remind us, the wise men are there to remind us that no one is exempt from the power and the beauty of Jesus' rescue that everyone has a role and a space here with him, and that it was God's plan all along that the Savior of the world was really coming for the world, not just coming for the Jews. And that's why, that's every single time you see the wise men up here, that should remind you of that. And it should remind you that these guys, they didn't really know what they were coming for. They knew kind of, but they didn't totally you know. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show that in a minute. So we're going to go ahead and look at Matthew 2 and actually look at their story this morning. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. I'm just going to read this for us. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Jer- Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And this is what they're referring to. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For from you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found me, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went on ahead of them until it came to a stop over the place where the child was to be found. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after they came into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, the group of wise men were kind of considered as scientists of their day right? They learned um, navigation from the stars. They learned how to read the sky, not just as navigation, not just as the, you know, like a calendar, right? But they also learned how to figure out like what was going on in terms of significant events. And they believed that stars would kind of signify that, right? And as scientists and as like the educated of their day, they would go ahead and dig and try and figure out, okay, I see this star. What might it be predicting? And they would look in all these different ancient texts. They would look at all the different things that were said about what was to come, and they'd try and figure it out, right? Now, even though they didn't know a lot, even though they didn't know the Jewish culture and customs, and they didn't know the traditions or the, the scriptures very, not well, very well, they did know some things. We were told that they knew that the king of the Jews was to be born, right, around that time, and that he had a star that would lead people to him. And we probably know that they had some ancient texts that were available to them, because if you see on the map, which might be a little hard to see right now, um, you see that here are the wise men right in the middle, right under Syria, 
there they're going. That's not necessarily where they're from, but they're traveling. But where their region is from there's, is all the bedrock of Jewish faith. You've got the Tower of Babel. You've got the Garden of Eden. You've got Babylon, which is where Daniel was there for a long time and prophesying about the Savior of the world, right? And so there's all these different things. They're crossing the desert that the Israelites crossed to get to the promised land. So there, there's all this ancient text. There's all these whispers of God's story all throughout. So we don't know fully what was available to them, but they knew enough if they were digging to kind of know, okay, well, this is what I heard right? They might have come across Numbers 24, which says, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult or sons of war, right? Or he might have been looking at Isaiah 60 that says, all nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come and see your radiance. Look and see for everyone is coming home. Your sons are coming from distant lands, your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in the arms. Do we have more of this? Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will trill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Perhaps they came upon these and then they were like, with that, with the timing, with the star, we believe that the king of the Jews is coming. And he is not just going to be king of the Jews, but he will be savior of the world. And man, when I read Isaiah 60, that sounds like good news. And man, I... Don't just want that for the Jews. I believe that that could be good news for all of us. And if that is true, if what we're studying and what we're thinking about might be true and it might happen in my lifetime, do I want to be there for that? Yeah, I do. Now, here's the thing. When they're reading these ancient texts, they're not like, oh, this must be the truth. They're kind of reading it a little bit like how we would read Iliad, right? Like, or studying Greek mythology. Like, this is folklore. This is poetry. This is a way for us to understand the history of a certain people group, right? But when they're trying to figure out the truth, they're like, I don't know if there's truth in this, but I hope there's truth in this because it sounds amazing, right? And so when they are taking that year-long journey, they are taking a big risk. So why would they decide to leave their families, leave their jobs, leave everything that they know to travel to an unknown land to find a king that might not be there at all, right? The only reason why I think they would do that is because they're good scientists. And there's a number of scientists and doctors in this room right now. And what I've seen of good scientists is this. Good scientists have to embrace the what if. Good scientists have to have a really good imagination. They have to have wonder and curiosity about what if, right? Like, and they have to go and explore it. It is what prompts them to go seek this king of the Jews and make this year-long journey because of this wonder and curiosity and this passion to seek out the what if. It is that same longing and passion that pushes us to discover vaccines, to explore galaxies, to dig in dirt until we find answers, 
right? It is that same curiosity that moves and compels people to do something about it. And it is that same passion in the wise men that say, I don't know if that is what I'm going to find, but I'm going to go for it. Because they probably studied the stars and they probably found out a lot of things in the past and they probably found out things that are going to happen hundreds of years, but this was the one thing that was going to happen in their lifetime. And they said, if I can even witness it, if I have a chance to see this, I'm going to do it, right? It is like people like, I can take a flight and I can see the total solar eclipse. I'm going to do it. It's not like people like me who is like, oh, I'll drive to Salem? I don't know, right? Like, that wasn't them. And so they make their journey seeking this elusive messiah. And they bring gifts just in case. Just in case this folklore might actually be true. They're like, if it is true, we can't show up empty-handed. Let's bring gold and frankincense. I mean, because that's what it says in Isaiah 60. But we're also going to bring myrrh, gold that represents wealth and power. Frankincense, an incense that represents worship and adoration, and myrrh, which was used as a perfume and embalming purposes in Egypt, which foreshadowed Jesus' death on the cross later. In Mark, Jesus on the cross is offered wine with, mixed with myrrh, which was seen as a, a painkiller, right? Now, if you were foreigners and you were like, I'm digging and I'm trying to find out what's going on, what do the Jewish people have uh, um, to them that they believe? Um, and they, they're like, I know these few things, but as I'm going to Israel, I am sure, because they have all the texts available to them because of the stories that they've heard from their grandparents and their great-grandparents, that they have been waiting for the Messiah. I am sure that when I get to Israel, as I've taken a year to get there, they've taken a year to prepare for the savior of the world. So probably Israel is partying right now. I'm going to go into Israel and the King Herod is going to know all this stuff. Everybody's going to be ready and waiting to celebrate their savior. And so they get into Israel and, they're like, and we're going to find out where it is and we get to join in the big party. And they get there and it's business as usual. King Herod's just, you know, like, eat, chomping on his turkey leg, you know, like, people are just doing life as is, right? And so they go, and they ask, like, I mean, what is happening here? We know that there's a king of the Jews, right? Like, that he's supposed to be here, and he's coming. Do you know what town he's in? And it says that Herod and everybody else is, like, perplexed, because they're like, first of all, who are you? Like, why are you here, right? You do not belong here. What do you know of our king that I do not know. And also Herod's like, I'm the king of the Jews. <laughs> I'm the one that's in charge here. Don't tell me that there's a different king of the Jews coming. But he's like, what do you know that I don't know? So he go ahead, goes ahead and gathers his wise men. And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In, in the scriptures, in the Bible, there's a prophecy that he's going to come from Bethlehem. Yeah. You know, in fact, we've memorized it all since we were kids. And it comes from this part of the Bible. See, we know so much. But what they don't, how they don't respond is like, what do you mean? They said that he's coming? Where? How? We already know this, but tell us where, uh, like, oh, we should get ready. That is not their response, right? While Herod is busy protecting his power, while God's people have forgotten God's voice and promises, it is the Gentile scientists that come declaring the coming of Messiah, right? They are able to say, yeah, we know it's in Bethlehem, but they say it like this is what the Bible says, not does this mean God is sending the Messiah now? 
Should we get up and go? In all these years of waiting, they no longer are expectant or even believe that God is going to keep his promise. Knowing the Bible doesn't mean you really believe it. We see that in these chief priests. And they certainly don't take heed to what these four men have to say to them. What do you know about our God? Right? But nevertheless, Herod feels threatened, and he pretends like he wants to worship this king of the Jews. And so he's like, hey, search, and then when you find him, come and tell me so that I can worship him too. Right? We know later on that that is not his intention. And then there's the slaughter of the innocents where he sends his men to go and kill every newborn male so that th he will not be taken over in his power. Matthew tells us that when they finally follow the star all the way to Bethlehem, to the manger where they see Mary and the baby Jesus, they immediately fell down in worship. They're able to recognize the searching and learning and longing have all led them to this baby who's going to bring light in the darkness. And it is this one moment where they're transformed from seeker to worshiper. Can you imagine going for an entire year towards something where you're like, I don't know if it's going to be there. <laughs> I don't know. Did we misread this? Are we in a different decade? Like, did you get this wrong? Uh, you know, like, can you imagine an entire year of working towards something and the doubts that you might have, the numerous times where you thought, maybe we should just turn around and go home. I feel kind of stupid doing this, right? And yet they persist and they continue. And even with the doubts, even with the questions, they are on this journey because they're like, but if it is true, wouldn't it be worth it? And they go, and when you finally get to that place, they, because they have been seeking, they have the eyes to see what is actually happening before them. Because it says, as soon as they see Mary and her child, they know this is it. And their responding is great joy. Have you ever anticipated something for a long time? And you were like, maybe I'm foolish to hope for this. Maybe I'm foolish to even think that this might happen. And when it does, imagine the joy and, and the hope that is realized of what is now your reality. That is what they're experiencing. But they're not just experiencing it for themselves, they're experiencing it for the world, right? They're like, not only is this good news for us, can you imagine what is changing, what is shifting in our universe because of this one child that is born? What, that this is true, the repercussions of that is felt in the entire universe. And that is the joy that they are feeling. And that's something that we don't fully understand, right, like in our mind. But that is what is happening at that moment, that their travels fueled by this hope is finally realized. Now, while Herod and his priests had the proximity and the knowledge to be the first to worship the Savior of the world, they did not because they did not seek God. They did not expect him to come. They thought they already knew him and knew everything that they were supposed to know. And so they were like, I know the Bible, I know this, and now we're just going to sit and we're not going to be expectant for anything because what is God going to do? So when truth and wonder is offered from an unlikely place, they neither have the curiosity to seek or the humility to care. <clears throat> the final thing is I love that it is through a dream that God speaks to them to tell them that Herod's no good and they need to go a different way, right? 
It is through a dream. And I think sometimes we're like, oh yeah, God, God spoke to him through a dream and the wise men laughed and good. Whew, you know, like way to protect the wise men and way to protect Jesus. But if you look in this story, it's always been angels that have been coming to bring a message from God to his people. It is an angel that shows up to Mary. It's an angel that shows up to Joseph. It's an angel that shows up to the shepherds, right? And then it's angels in the manger, right? Like, so why doesn't God send an angel to the wise men to speak to them? It is because of this. Angels were something that Jewish people had a context for. They understood the Old Testament, and they saw all the stories that angels would appear to God's people. They could trust angels that they were a messenger from God. And even though angels were terrifying in some ways, right, and every single time an angel appeared, they always said, do not be afraid, <laughs> right? God is, with, God is with you. His favor is upon you, right? Like, do not be afraid. And even though it was frightening to see an angel, they always knew and could trust that it was from God. They could always trust that what was coming out of the words, the words that were coming out of the angel's mouth was good and was from God. The wise men did not have that context for angels. They did not, but they did understand dreams. They could trust that dreams were from God. You know, if you read, read in the Old Testament, you would know that Pharaoh had dreams, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and that they would seek for interpretation at those times, right? Their context, their cultural context was that God spoke to them in dreams. And so even though throughout all the story, it was angels that appeared, for the wise men, God sent a dream. Because God pursues people in the way that they can hear him. Right? In all the different cultural contexts and all the different experiences of God, they're like, I'm going to speak to you in the way that you can hear me. I'm not going to push onto you, well, this is the way I communicate through angels. Take it or leave it. Right? He's like, this is the way you understand how I speak, and so I'm going to speak to you in that way so that you can hear me. Oh, you study stars? I'm going to speak to you through stars, right? And even though we see the wise men's um, intersection here, can you imagine how many years ago God had already started pursuing them and wooing them with his creation, with these ancient texts that they would find? How many years he had been like, and here I'm going to drop this breadcrumb, Isaiah 60. Oh, here I'm going to find this person that's going to interact with you and talk about numbers, and it's going to do something in your mind. Oh, I'm going to show these stars to you guys, and I'm going to get you guys together to band together to talk about this phenomenon and work together in your brilliant minds to come up with this thing, right? It is not only a year before that they're like, hey, now God's going to start pursuing you, and now God's going to speak to you in a dream. It had been happening for years before that, right? So at that final moment, God's like, it is not just the wise men's joy, it is God's joy to be like, you found all the pieces, and here you are, right? I have been pursuing you, and here we are together. God's redemption is for all people, and he pursues them in ways that they can hear him. Finally, I said that it was 12 days later after Christmas or after the birth of Jesus that he comes, and he, um, the wise men come, and they worship Jesus, right? So we celebrate that in the liturgical calendar. Christmas is not just a day. Christmas is a season. So it starts with Christmas, and then you have 12 days of celebration, and you get all these birds along the way. <laughs> if you sing the 12 days of Christmas, right, you get a lot of birds along the way. And then finally, you end with January 6th, and that's Epiphany. 
And there's a, a number of different ways that you can celebrate Epiphany. Epiphany was just a way of celebrating, it was the revelation to the Gentiles, right? It was the coming of the wise men to Jesus. But one of the ways that I love um, this, this traditional way of celebrating Epiphany is that you chalk on the, the top of your front door um, this, this uh, three letters, CMB, um, which signify the given names of the three wise men, Casper, Melchior, and Balthasar, right? And you put that over your door or you put that over your churches to signify and pray and be a reminder that our houses would be hospitable places for all who seek Jesus, those who are like us and those who are not like us, those who are just down the street and those who travel far away to come, that our houses and our churches would be safe places for that, right? And that's what we get to celebrate in Epiphany every year, right? The kids don't always understand it, but I write these three letters on the top of our door just for me to remember as I pass through and as I welcome people into our house. Man, God, would you make my house a place that is safe for all people who are seeking Jesus? So this morning, I want to give us just a couple of moments of quiet reflection before there's going to be a lot of fun, crazy chaos that comes in. What are ways this season that we can recapture our wonder and awe in our longing for Jesus? What are ways this season that we can recapture our wonder and awe in our longing for Jesus, right? That we wouldn't be like the chief priests that are like, yeah, I know the Bible. I know Christmas, you know, but that we would be seeking, that we would be longing for him. How do we recapture that that the wise men had? Number two, how does God welcome you in your searching and longing for him? Do we have eyes, just the, even in a couple of moments, that we would just reflect on the last couple of weeks or last couple of months? See, where are the breadcrumbs that God has been dropping to say, I'm searching for you. As you're searching for me, I am searching for you and looking for you. What dreams have you had, right? What, what interactions have you had? Number three, how do we create spaces for all people to see Jesus? And this is one that I hope that we continue reflecting on because that's not an easy thing, right, to ask. And that sometimes that is true in our physical spaces and sometimes that's just true in the spaces that we create, the emotional space, you know, the, the space that we create as we're sitting with people right, who we are and what we bring of safety and of, of kindness, of gentleness, right? So I'm just going to invite us into a couple of minutes of reflection, and then we get to celebrate together in seeing through the kids' eyes the nativity story. <laughs> 